In this compilation episode about school difference, we hear from past guests Peter Goodyear, John Southworth, Dr. Timothy Cottrell, and Jane Prescott. We're going to kind of get on to Amanda Portman Woodward. I mean, just tell us a little bit about that because, you know, for me, it sounds either like a, a firm of solicitors or some accountants. MPW was founded nearly 50 years ago, so 50 years ago next year, by three Cambridge graduates, Messrs. Amanda Portman and Woodward. And they wanted to create an environment that was very similar to the Cambridge college system with very focused pastoral care and small tutor groups. It started in Rodney Portman's front lounge. From then it has grown and grown and grown. And from being what was known as a traditional crammer, where students would come in for literally three months, crammed for an A-level or a retake A-level, we've developed and developed over many, many years. And over the last 20 years, specifically, we've become far more of a, a more traditional day school. So starting in year 10 to year 10, year 11, GCSE programs, and then A-level programs that we've bolted on over the years from additional international programs. Fundamentally, it's a, a London day school for UK students, but we again developed our international market, and we're now about 25%, sometimes 30% international. It's unique in the way that it is not your standard school in any way. It is quite liberal in many ways. It's got, we have no uniform, everyone's on first name terms, very small class sizes. We max out at nine per class, and our sciences and arts tend to be no greater than eight. So small classes, very adult approach, certainly giving our students real independence, or calling them students, first of all. So make them feel like they are on their way to university and success beyond the college, not just what the college delivers for them at the time. So it is quite a unique approach. As the fact, it's been going successfully for nearly 50 years, must show that it's doing something right. And we had our inspection, our major six-year inspection, a couple of months ago. And the final result was published a few weeks ago. And we got the top grades again. And we got them six years ago, seven years ago. So we got two excellence again. And our report was could not have been more complimentary about what we do. I mean, we have very clear sort of aims and ethos, and we sort of deliver what it says on the tin, I suppose, like the Ronson advert. We do what we say we're going to do. We do it well. We're non-selective. We get some really, really amazing results. Yeah, I was going to ask you about the admissions piece. So it's a non-selective fee-paying day school that specialises in the two years at GCSE and the two years at form. And is it academic? Is it draw academic or is it broader than that? I think the initial draw is academia. I mean, we focus on academic success and giving you know, real value added. I think that's where we are the difference. When you're a small group, you can really focus on those individuals and get the very best out of them. So we have students who arrive to us who've been told they're not going to get grades, they're going to fail, they perhaps don't, aren't going to do very well. And they come down to us with quite low self-esteem, but they come out with some amazing results. And I celebrate three Cs as much as I do three A stars. I'm not a big one on stats, although they're very nice when we have nice stats, and we do have very nice stats. I'm not someone pushing those stats because I don't need to. You know, our reputation goes before us, and most of our marketing is by word of mouth. You know, we don't advertise widely, we don't need to. But we run these very, very specific courses. Students are joining year 10, 
year 10 is a very general education year, bring everybody up to where we think they'd be in terms of national curriculum at the end of year 10. But then everybody then moves on to our one year intensive GCSE courses. And we run 27 different GCSE courses. So they can do all those in one year. So that's why the maximum number we do is eight. And they can't cope with any more than eight in one year. Having done that, they move on to either our traditional two-year A-level programme, and we run 45 A-level subjects. Or they could do, in addition to that, they could do GCSEs alongside A-levels if they need to take a few more or get some better grades. And then along with their A-level programme, they might then in the second year take up one of our one-year A-level courses, where they do a whole A-level in one year. And all of our A-levels we offer as a one-year programme as well. So the one-year A-levels are most popular with what we call our year 14 students. So students who come from very, very well-known, highly regarded schools who might have been predicted three A stars, but have got three Bs, missed their place at a top university, come to us for one further year, retake their A-levels over a year, and then get their three A stars, and then go to the university of their choice. And we've got a whole host of examples of students getting that success. And it's just lovely to see the turnaround that we can give to these young people. And we always sort of say, you know, don't sleepwalk into your future. Actually make a decision, even though it's a tough decision to do your A-levels again, it's worth it because you can invariably do much, much better. And it's the draw. It's phenomenal, the fact that you can offer 27 GCSC subjects, 45 A-level. I've got four kids, as, as everyone knows on this podcast. So I've been through the decision-making at GCSE, at A-level, and I know that the schools that, that my children are at are limited by what they have, and you either fit in and you've got to choose from a selection of it, and sometimes, depending on the way that the schedules are done, they can't do them all. And so suddenly I feel that my children are somehow compromised in where their passions lie because they can't because of timetabling, and also, have they got all of the subjects there that are going to make my child thrive? And I was a good example at a grammar school. I wasn't particularly academic. I was bright, but everyone was brighter than me. You know, I tended to have a personality and want to play sport. And like, if I wasn't going to be the best, I'd just sit back. But I was still stuck in a very traditional academic place where I kind of wanted to do creative subjects. And I was kind of told, well, well why? You're not going to get a job of it. There's no career at the end of it. It's kind of, no, you've got to do these. How have you adjusted to that modern approach or the modern needs of families who kind of want that breadth for their child to thrive? I think that's why so many people come to us and look us up, because you know, I came into this sector 12 years ago. I came from the Perth School in Cambridge, which is very traditional, highly regarded, very, very selective, you know, one of the top schools in the country, but only offered about I know, 16, 17 A-level subjects. And I think what we offer is the whole spectrum of subjects and students can choose whatever combination they want. So a student like you, if they'd arrived here, if they want to do three creative art subjects, that's fine. We'll let them do that. They can do art, textiles and photography all at the same time as A-levels. And we would give them obviously advice of the risks of doing that. But if that's what they want to do, they do it. I've had students come here to do three languages. Again, that's fine. You're quite right. Most schools don't give that flexibility because they put all their subjects in blocks and you can only do one subject per block. So when we do our timetabling here, my timetabler pulls her hair out every year because I leave timetabling later and later. We literally timetable the week before term starts. 
And we guarantee that any student who's signed up to join MPW will get exactly the subject choices they want. Even if it's a group of one, we will run that subject. And I'm very blessed here that I've got the most amazing tutors. Many of them teach two, three, sometimes four different subjects. So that creates a lot of flexibility. But they're also very, very highly skilled tutors. They've been in this sector for a long time. I can't risk bringing in newly qualified teachers because they can't cope with the demands of suddenly being thrown over a group who want to do a one-year course at pace. You know, you can't meander here. You've got to go straight for it at speed. So with that quality of tutor and the ability to teach more than one subject, and they don't mind that they get literally the timetable the morning before they're due to start going their first lesson because they know they can walk into any class and they can teach it with absolute confidence. It's a bit walking on a tightrope sometimes. And our parents, often who have not been used to this type of sector, will often be contacting me continuously saying, can we have the title? We'll give the title. I'm going, no, they'll get the timetable on the day they arrive. A bit lastminute.com, but more successful. I want to talk about mobile phones and smartphones because schools often ban them and they consider them a distraction to learning. You've expressed that we should be using them as a tool instead. Can you expand on this? Not everybody realises that a laptop and a tablet can do everything that the phone can do. And certainly everything that young people want to do on their phone, they can do on their iPad or their tablet and their laptop. That's quite easy. So all the messaging services and so on. And we make children have another device. Many of them have been using their phone as their online learning tool while that we've been in lockdown. And now all of a sudden we say to them, well, you, you know that thing that you've been using to learn with? Well, you can't now. And it's crazy because a lot of children are much more adept at using their phones as reminders, as calendars, as note machines. I mean, just the microphone function within a Word document on a phone where it records extremely accurately everything that's said is useful in a classroom scenario if you have somebody who can't get information down fast enough or for whatever reason their learning is hindered in some way and they'd find that really useful. So I've always encouraged students to take photographs of the board when the teacher's finished writing all over it in order to be able to capture it, to use later. You know, there are all sorts of reasons we should use our phone. Yes, they are a distraction. They're just a distraction to a lot of adults. How many adults do we know in meetings who pick up and look at their phone during the meeting? We're all guilty of this. And I think the older generations are far worse than the younger generations who've grown up with only a smartphone. They've been in, what, 10, 12 years now? And so they really haven't known the bricks that we often talk about or no phone at all, which, of course, it was when I was younger. So I I think we've got to manage our classrooms. And there are simple ways of doing it. They've got to always have them silenced and in their bag if they're not being used. Or you have them face down on the desk. So again, they're not a distraction. They're silent and the teacher knows where they are because they're there on the desk. And if you're not using them in that particular lesson or at that time. I see all of year seven at this time of the year and I have a short meeting with them individually. I always ask them, do you have a mobile phone? There are a number that don't, that choose to not have a mobile phone. One this year has told me that her brother had had a mobile phone from when he was in year six, but she has chosen not to have one. She says she can do everything she wants to do on her tablet. 
So it doesn't need a mobile phone at the moment and has chosen not to. And I think that shows just how independent they are and how prepared they are to be different than to the crowd because it's not what they want to do. So I think if and if you demonize phones, you just shove it underground. So they go into the toilets and use them and they perhaps hand in a phone that's an old-fashioned old phone, no SIM cards. I know a school that checked all the phones and very, very few of them had SIM cards in them, the ones they, handed, ones they handed in. What are we saying anyway? At what age do we say you can have a phone? Is that 16? Is that 18? Is that 14? Why are we deciding this? Most apps have an age limit. That is where the control should come in. So I think that these the companies that produce the apps then have a moral responsibility to ensure that underage can't access it. And that in particular applies to things like pornography, to sites that incite violence, suicide. They are absolutely the sites that ought to be controlled and banned. And that's what we've got to look. Instead of saying in schools you can't use them, most abuse of phones goes on out of school in an evening, at a weekend, not in the school day. In the school day, I think we've got a responsibility to teach children how to use their phone, how to be responsible with it. The pitfalls, and there are pitfalls, the digital footprint that they're already leaving when they're liking things on the web or on apps or whatever it happens to be. We must teach them about that. I talk constantly about the etiquette of phones you know, when and where it's um, appropriate to use them, the safety side of them. And I want them to feel that if they get it wrong, that they can come to us in school and say, I've made a mess here and I now don't know how to unpick it. And we can help them. But if we say that they can't use them, that they're banned, that it's illegal, that it's um, something that they shouldn't have, then they're never going to come and ask for help if they feel they need it. I hope you're enjoying the Inspiring Schools podcast. We're always on the hunt for guests with vision and a desire to share them. If you'd like to be involved or know of someone with great ideas at a school near you, please drop me an email to podcast at interactiveschools.com and my team will be in touch. On the school campus, you have the Sullivan Centre for Innovation and Leadership. Can you quickly explain what that is and what's it there to do and who's it there to serve? So Sullivan is a 40,000 square foot innovation center. I would say the way it fits into the life of our campus is that it serves a portion of our student population, right? So we want to be a school where we have exceptional opportunities for students who want to pursue something in great depth. And that could be we have a wonderful orchestra program and jazz program and theater and, you know, lots of things like that. For students who like the areas of STEM education, Sullivan's their place, right? You know, so our robotics kids, our computer science kids, our genomics kids, you know, our our kids who want to do science research. It's a center for them. But the thing that differentiates it is that it's almost entirely project based, right? Or does things at a level that you would see mostly at university. How do you create and sustain an innovation center like that so it doesn't just become for the ones that are interested in necessarily technology? Because innovation can be creative. It's a challenging thing. You know, I'd say in terms of secondary education, most of what you put into a place like that, when you talk about innovation, these have been co-curriculars. They haven't been part of the core curriculum of schools. So from the outset, there's a space in the day conflict 
when you go to establish something like this, you know, the, the standard, I think, idea around innovation in STEM is that it can be woven into existing curricula or if physical space is actually created on a campus that a faculty will find a way to use it as part of their existing curricula, a sort of a, if you build it, they will come model. These are really limiting constraints on the student experience. So when we look to create it, I'll just kind of share our recipe. When, when we look to create it, we decided to take that head on and plan or look at the dimensions we needed to address in order to curricularize an innovation center. So we looked at merit, you know, that the programs that we created in this new educational space had to be meritorious versus other student options. We looked at time and program that new opportunities all needed to be available to students as scheduled courses. We curricularized the co-curricular. Uh, we addressed hiring differently, the people that we would put in the building. We hired engineers, scientists, filmmakers, computer programmers, and so on, all of whom had experience in the real world outside a context of education. We established a new department, the I department, our innovation department, and we created a new employment model for I department faculty members. So instead of a four section teaching load, their requirements are a two section load with the rest of their time dedicated to facilitating the use of the Sullivan Center by the larger faculty and in support of student projects. We created time for them to be innovative, right? That's a big component of innovation, right? You have to give people time. The final dimension is we addressed funding. We recognized as a school that this would likely be the most expensive educational paradigm on our campus. You know, it often reduces to one-to-one -one education. And so we had to account for that level of staffing. The other thing we did that I, I think helped us become really successful was we worked on defining or achieving alignment for the I department faculty. We took a lot of this from Olin College of Engineering. There's a wonderful book written by the founders called A Whole New Engineer. And we used it to define project-based learning as tackling messy real-world problems that don't have defined solutions, that require an iterative process, and most importantly, engage students in a way that puts autonomy, purpose, and mastery at the center of their experience. That's kind of the recipe we use to establish an innovation center on our campus. And then the final thing we did was create a relationship between this center and our community. We wanted to make sure it was very community facing and serving. So we created STEM education, professional development programs and community science programs that would serve hundreds of public and private schools in our state um, and engage thousands of students. And today that's been super successful. And, it, you know, it does lend itself to that idea that we have this wonderful resource, but really we want to use it for our students, but also recognize that it's a resource here to serve our community. And you're serving your local community, but also there must be public interest or benefit to everyone else outside of your local community nationally, but maybe internationally, because the thing with innovation centers and these hubs of excellence where you are trailblazing new ideas, you're realizing that what you have to provide these kids is a balance between knowledge and skills, but the skill piece, project-based learning is massive, and it has to be fit for purpose and relevant for the employees in the world in which they're going to go off and make a difference to. Is it easy to package up what you've done and say, this is the model, we've learned this, this is what we think, this is how we're doing it. And for me to pick this up and go, Timothy, how can I now put this into my school? And you have a model that can run. I mean, I guess easy is a relative thing. 
right? You know, I think it's easy for us and we have done this. We've had many, many schools from around the world visit us and tour the Sullivan Center. We are open source. We'll share everything, you know, and including our roadmap to how you do this. The difficult part really is how do you fit it into an existing school? You know, as I said, you know, you have these time conflicts, you have curricular conflicts, you have people who already teach and their jobs are taking up all of the student space. And these things do play out. In our case, we created this innovation center, a whole course catalog associated with it. Other departments, people in other departments, it really rankled them because all of a sudden students weren't there to take their courses. Simultaneously, we've grown our school. We ended up having to recognize that. And our upper school has grown by a couple hundred students because we knew now we have the curricular space to support them. So I think that's the hard part. Money is a hard thing too. You know, we, you have an infrastructure at a school. And I think that's why people more often try to work within these frameworks where they weave this stuff into existing courses, right? What we did is very, very different, you know, and we built a 40,000 square foot building and created a department, hired a bunch of people and created a bunch of courses. That's a big commitment that a school needs to be able to make. And how do you go about measuring what an impact it's had, you know, on the students? Obviously, there's your local community. Because with anything that you go and do, you feel it, right? And you can see some of it. But is there anything that you kind of would have a look at all your graduates who went off of the college and went off for now they're they're doing things and they were all influenced because they had the opportunity that other kids didn't have in other schools. And are they more employable? Are they getting into better universities? I'm just curious as to whether or not there is anything you have. We don't push every student through the Innovation Center. You know, it's self-selecting. And so for those students, for what we see them do in the program here, it's much more qualitative than quantitative. Project-based learning is like that, right? But there are some quantifiable measures we see. You know, we see our robotics program going to the world championships every year, right? Very happy that they most often win kind of the, the awards given to teams that are the most collaborative with other teams. We see in our independent study science research program, multiple peer-reviewed publications every year. I mean, this is graduate level publications of research, right? Graduate school level publications of research. We see our students creating their own businesses, you know, and coming up with products. And the whole program kind of works that way. When I, when I said autonomy, purpose, and mastery, I think adults often make the mistake that what we think is purposeful is purposeful to teenagers. So, you know, purpose is we're going to talk about climate change, right? maybe for teenagers. What's really purposeful for a teenager is their relationship to other teenagers. So we structured the innovation center so different courses are often working for each other. So let's say there's a science research course that this has happened. There's science research program where they're using microscopes and they want to be able to record things using iPads. And it turns out this is kind of hard because as soon as you get the slide under there, whatever you're looking at, if it's alive, will move and you're not able to get the picture you want when you put the iPad on there. So they hired the design and fabrication class to create a mount for an iPad on the microscope and 3D print it and fabricate it and use it. And so, you know, that's a great example of how we have that synergy and where students find a lot of purposes when at this age level teenagers, when they can find a way to serve each other. Big believers in that whole autonomy, purpose and mastery as the core of the project-based learning experience.
apparently you've got to do. How did that come about? That's creativity and innovation right there. We've run a very broad set of A-level and B-tech qualifications, and one of those is animal management. And we've built quite a reputation for ourselves within that world of animal management, animal husbandry, animal care. And on the basis of that, we then sought to develop our own zoo here at the school, where children can have day-to-day interactions with animals, They're able to show animal care, animal husbandry, which forms a part of, for some children, forms a part of their curriculum, but for many other children, just simply forms a part of their activities program. It's the most oversubscribed activity because it's quite small, so you can only have a certain number of pupils, but so many pupils want to be a part of that. And whether that's during the weekdays or on the weekends with a boarding community, they get the opportunity to spend time in the zoo looking after the animals but also for those children that might travel from abroad that haven't been able to bring pets with them, then actually they get the opportunity to care for the animals, to feed the animals and to be a part of that. And instead of feeding your budgie at home, you've actually got an African hornbill. Instead of feeding your guinea pig, you've got a lemur or you've got squirrel monkeys or you've got Madagascan mongooses. So all those sort of things then allow us to provide for children, again, allowing all the children, there'll be some children who the zoo will be their thing. That will be the thing. And if they can find their thing in the zoo, then again, that comes back to the whole thing about a joyful learning experience, a joyful education, and they feel that their needs in a way are looked after because they then, you know, if they've got a need to look after animals and want to look after animals, that's being provided here. I think it's a fantastic USP. I think it's phenomenal. I mean, just the animals you listed are exotic. I mean, how many animals do you have? Gosh, I think if you, if you started going down to counting different species of fish and frogs and all that sort of thing, I think it probably stretches into a hundred and something different species. But we do like to support local conservation programs. So sometimes we'll be doing stuff with Sussex Wildlife. We'll do some stuff with ZSL. With London Zoo, we're doing stuff with Chester, Bristol. And sometimes we find that we become a smaller community for some of those animals that are no longer coping well in those bigger zoos. Yeah, so it is really, really terrific, a really terrific part of the education that we provide. And I can see, well, it doesn't take a genius to see how that can contribute to joyful learning. And I'm not surprised it's oversubscribed either. You know, and you think about us being more conscious the alpha generation coming through of the planet uh sustainability in the environment everything to do with it i just think it's uh it feels like a no-brainer you obviously got the luxury of some space and to be able to do that but being bold and taking a risk and doing something like that hopefully it's going to open the doors to more schools offering this and offering it to a wider community because i think there's a lot more kids that are interested in this than a traditional academic pathways you can connect with me on twitter instagram and via linkedin Remember, keep inspiring schools. We need more future school thinking now.